This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, it's here. Welcome to California, Omicron. The new COVID variant is not only officially in the U.S., it's here in our beloved state of California. So we will go in-depth on what it means for all of us. We'll talk with former FDA Director Dr. Scott Gottlieb on how the arrival of this variant could impact COVID policies going forward and whether our vaccines are likely to hold up. Huma Abedin, Hillary Clinton's longtime aide and confidant, endured years of critical press coverage, the grueling breakup from Anthony Weiner, but now she's working to reclaim her story. She will be here with us. It is the most important abortion case in nearly half a century. We'll tell you about the arguments before the Supreme Court over Mississippi's restrictive abortion law. And then what will it take to entice the audiences back into the movie theaters? Good movies. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> it's as simple as that. We start, though, with Omicron in California. Dr. Ann Ramoyne is a professor of epidemiology and infectious diseases at UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. Uh, okay, so it's here. No no real surprise, right? We're going to find a lot more cases, I'm sure, as the days and weeks go uh, on. So how concerned should we all be? Well, I think that it's exactly as you said. Nobody should be surprised that we're seeing a, a case here in the United States, and uh, it's as expected. This, when you see uh, something emerge somewhere in the world, it's very likely with international travel that we'll see it everywhere. We're still trying to understand a lot about this virus, and here are the things that we want to know. We want to know how transmissible is it. We want to know, does it cause more severe disease, and will it evade the, the immune responses generated by vaccines or diminish the effectiveness of therapeutics? This is all still up in the air. We don't have answers yet. So I think that the the idea is we should be concerned. We should have great situational awareness with testing and sequencing. And we need to wait and see um, until we really understand how significant this variant is and what it means for our response. Given the one case and the little we know about it, what can we glean from it? Uh, they think not boosted, but fully vaccinated, mild symptoms and recovering. So that's good. Close contacts, they say negative so far. And then I guess in terms of the testing, this kind of worked how it's supposed to, right? Obviously, if it's returned from travel, you have to test to get back into the country, but probably past that one since uh, they're back in, but then got symptomatic and went to get a test instead of just, you know, walking around with a cough and saying, oh, it's a cold. Exactly. And I think that that's the key is that, that we, we really do need to understand just testing to get back into the country three days before arrival is not going to be a fail-safe here. It's not going to guarantee that we're not going to get cases. We know that the incubation period for uh, these, the, the coronavirus is anywhere between 2 and 14 days, uh, and, and most likely in that first week. So I think that, that what we're going to have to really consider going forward is how do we, um, how do we deal with this? It's, it's not just people coming from South Africa. It's going to be international travelers globally. And, and so I think that coming up with a way that we can uh, encourage people to test once they've come home and uh, potentially quarantine when they've been um, when they've been traveling internationally is going to be a good step forward. Let me ask you to uh, make a comparison for us, if if uh, I can, because I'm sure you remember what was going through your head uh, going back to the beginnings of the pandemic when we first discovered the first cases of COVID in the U.S. Uh, compare what you thought then to what's going through your mind now. But we know so much more about this virus. We know that it is spread from person to person asymptomatically. Uh, we know about the incubation period. We know that it is 
um, something that uh, is is uh, spread through the air. Uh, we we know so much more about this virus, and I think that if we really want to take the lessons learned here, we know that if there's an infection anywhere, it's potentially everywhere. So our keys are. The, uh, let's be proactive and protect ourselves. How do we do that? Get vaccinated if you're not vaccinated. Get boosted if you are eligible and you haven't been boosted yet. Wear a high-quality mask if you're in public settings, in particular indoors. Um, be mindful of what your risk is, the risk of the people that you are close to, and what the rate of transmission is around you. I think we, we have all of the tools in place to be able to, um, to, pro- to, to really protect ourselves, to protect each other and to keep cases down, no matter whether it's the Omicron variant, if it's the Delta variant, which is, by the way, the most common variant, it is the dominant variant that's circulating right now. Um, it's, it's, it really, all of the things that we need to do are already in place. If Doc- we can actually do them. Dr. Ann Ramoyne, professor of epidemiology, infectious diseases, at UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health. Doctor, thanks. When we come back, a former FDA commissioner comes to in depth to talk to us about uh, the arrival of this variant on U.S. shores. You're listening to KNX in depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Still to come, Roe v. Wade, national rights to abortion access. Can it survive its biggest challenge yet, the Supreme Court? Before that, a former Hillary Clinton aide, Huma Abedin, actually still works with her, coming to in-depth to tell her story of picking up the pieces and moving on. Right now, though, while our response and management of the COVID pandemic has obviously left a lot to be desired, there was a sense heading into this winter that we were perhaps finally getting a handle on the virus, or at least learning to live with it. Then along comes Omicron, and the worry is that COVID's latest variant will put us right back to square one. Well, here to talk about all of it with us is Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He served as commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration during the Trump administration. He's author of the book Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic. Dr. Gottlieb, Thank you for being with us on In-Depth. So when we talk about this variant now on U.S. shores, are we still at the concern but not panic level? We're still at the concerns phase. We don't have a lot of data on this new strain. The data that's coming out, I think, is hardening some of those concerns. There was a lot of data that came out of uh, South African public health authorities today. Uh, And as more data accrues, what's happening is some of our initial estimates on on how transmissible this strain is have gone down over time in the last couple of weeks, but the estimates are still concerning and they're being hardened. So with more data, some of the assumptions that we have now are a little bit more certain than the assumptions we had two weeks ago. Um, And so what we're seeing is the potential that this strain is more transmissible than Delta, And that would be uh, concerning because its transmission potential is probably being driven by its ability to evade the immune protections that we've acquired through potentially vaccination, but certainly through prior infection. But I'm curious if the data that we have been getting from South Africa uh, is data that is applicable to other countries, in particular to the U.S., because as you know, uh, in, in South Africa, the vaccination rate is, is extremely low. Uh, they have a very young population compared to the U.S., so many people who uh, have not been vaccinated. So is the so-called spread of this particular variant in South Africa necessarily something that translates here? 
No, it isn't. And that's, um, you know, that's the big unknown variable. And also, where is it spreading in South Africa? We don't know the communities in which it's spreading. Is it people who've been vaccinated? Is it people who are immunocompromised? Is it people who've just been infected with Delta and was relying on the immunity that they acquired through prior infection? I mean, it could it could potentially be be spreading in people who've been previously infected with Delta, but not necessarily a vaccinated population. What we do know is the rate of prior infection with Delta is extremely high in South Africa. So that's what's concerning, seeing a spike on top of the background of a population that's already been heavily exposed to some of the previous variants. So it suggests that at least on, on some level, this is escaping some of that, some of that acquired immunity. Um, the data itself also isn't um, very clean. So, you know, it's a little bit of the fog of viral war because we don't have data on um, the prevalence of this new strain. What else? There's other things that could be spreading. Is it all this strain or is it Delta also spreading and maybe C12, which is another variant that we've seen there spike up at various points. It did seem to be the case that they were having some kind of Delta wave when this all began. Um, But, you know, this is clearly spreading in the background. You know, we mentioned already that in South Africa, the vaccination rate, those who have been fully vaccinated, two vaccines of Pfizer or Moderna, is fairly low compared to the U.S. Am I correct also that therefore we're talking about very few people who have actually had a third shot, a booster shot, so we don't really know from the South Africa data whether or not it is this variant is able to overcome not two but three shots right and there's reason to believe that the vaccines are going to be protective especially um a boosted vaccine that's where there's a a degree of confidence i'm on the board of pfizer um pfizer obviously markets one of those uh, mrna vaccines and i've talked to people in and around uh, the development of vaccines both inside the company and outside and there's a there's a reasonable degree of confidence based on just sort of modeling exercises and looking at this strain that the vaccines are going to afford a measure of protection and maybe a very meaningful measure of protection. And again, you're right. This is spreading against a backdrop where you have um, very little vaccination in in certain communities in, in South Africa. You, you have high prior infection with Delta, so people do have some immunity. Um, you also have uh, a high prevalence of HIV infection in the, in the province where this is spreading most rapidly. So about 20% of the population in that province um, has HIV infections. So that also creates a vulnerability. So it's it's a different circumstance. I think the Merck CEO got a lot of people concerned when he was saying, you know, from whom I'm hearing from, it doesn't look like this is going to be good for us and we may need to retool the shots and you're not going to get the immunity. But if the third boosters work, what is the mechanism? Is it that they ramp your immune system up? It's not the perfect match, but you're on a way better plateau than you were before. If, in fact, the vaccines are more protective than um, natural infection with Delta, it's probably that the vaccines are inducing more of what we call a polyclonal effect, where you're getting a broader range of antibodies. And some of those antibodies that you're getting are still very protective against this new variant versus when you're infected with Delta, you're getting a narrow, more narrow range of antibodies just against very specific portions of the virus. Um, it's probably has less to do with the absolute level of antibodies that are being produced and more the breadth of antibodies that are being produced by the vaccine, the three doses of vaccine versus just natural infection. So far, when you talk to some of the um, experts in South Africa, and I've had conversations with some of them, their, their perception is that this new variant seems to be spreading in communities that are largely unvaccinated, but were heavily infected with Delta. And that's what first caught their attention because they saw 
clusters of cases in communities where they, they felt that Delta had infected nearly 100% of the population. So they said something else must be going on here. Dr. Scott Gottlieb with us, former FDA commissioner, and we'll stick with us for a few more minutes here on In Depth. This is KNX In Depth along with Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson. Later on in the show, movie theater owners not only have the task of making audiences feel safe returning to theaters, they also have to overcome a very crowded media landscape. We'll look at the efforts to save our theaters. But coming up before that, uh, we will be speaking on In Depth with Huma Abedin. And you may note that uh, Mike said before Huma, and I'm saying Huma, and it turns out there's a story behind her name. Yes, and it's part of the book. And it's part of the book. And we will ask her about yes. it. Right now, though, back to Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner on the Omicron variant and everything we're dealing with in terms of COVID. Uh, Dr. Gottlieb, thanks for being with us. Uh, his book, by the way, Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic. Let's go back to vaccinations and talk about this overarching goal when sometimes we have these competing narratives. What should and what is the goal of these vaccines? Is is it, uh, again, to keep people out of hospitals and keep them from dying? Is it to just prevent infections outright? Uh, what are we trying to do? Yeah, the goalpost should be to use the vaccines to prevent people from um, having consequences from COVID infection. So what are consequences? A serious illness, hospitalization, certainly death. Um, that's, that's how we initially thought of these vaccines being deployed. I think the fact that the vaccines were so protective for a period of time against infection um, has led us to want to use the vaccines also to eliminate the infection. But in the long run, we're probably not going to be able to do that. Um, there's going to be people who get vaccinated and then have breakthrough infections. But the presumption is that their infection should be far less serious. They should be at far less risk of a bad outcome if they've been vaccinated. But in the near term, we're trying to use the vaccines to kind of end this pandemic, to try to break off chains of transmission and, and use them as tools to try to prevent uh, infection if in fact this strain, and these are, this is very speculative, we don't know, there's some anecdotal reporting that this new strain is less uh, virulent, meaning less serious, it's causing less serious illness than the traditional COVID. If in fact that's true, and we don't know, it, there's just some initial reports from some providers out of South Africa, then the idea of using the vaccine as a tool to prevent serious illness becomes even more attractive because if the illness is generally mild, what you want to protect against is the um, unusual circumstance where it isn't mild versus right now, you know, COVID is generally a, a serious enough illness, even if you're not going to get really seriously ill and become hospitalized or succumb to it, it's still a bad illness that you want to prevent most people or a lot of people want to prevent themselves from getting infected with it in the first place. If it is that less virulent version, does that kind of play into the, you know, the Spanish flu school of thought, which is, you know what, there's a couple ways to end this. And number one is vaccinate everybody, but we're never going to vaccinate everybody. So you vaccinate a lot. And then uh, a lot of people end up getting this in one way or another. And for those who are unvaccinated, it's really bad, no matter what strain you get. And then for those of us who are, you know what, you got it, you either got through it and didn't notice or you had a mild case. And that's how this eventually burns out possibility um, that this could be a vehicle that um, achieves herd immunity, but it, it, it presupposes that we're not going to see another variant behind this and another variant behind this, and the immunity conferred by this particular strain is going to 
crowd out other variants and you know that it, it's going to be sort of the persistent strain it's going to become the new dominant strain I mean, we thought delta would become it would be the dominant strain and then the question is will this now displace delta and what would displace this eventually is this country doing what it should be doing now vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, the this particular uh, variant and by that i mean uh, the restriction of, of uh, flights uh, from certain countries, South Africa in particular, of course. Uh, I understand there's some uh, uh, move to have testing done 24 hours before, perhaps that's already been implemented, 24 hours rather than three days before people fly into the U.S. Are these the measures we should be taking or should we be doing other things? No, I think we're doing what we should be doing. There's certain things we in addition that we should be undertaking but, you know i i take issue with the travel ban that we've imposed on um african nations i think it's counterproductive and you could have achieved most of what you wanted to achieve in terms of risk reduction by requiring people to be vaccinated and tested before they travel into the united states rather than a complete ban on travel which i think is destabilizing to south africa at the very time they need our support but i think the one thing we could be doing more of right now is providing assistance to the extent that the South Africans will accept it on some of this surveillance work. Um, you know, we're not getting great reporting out of South Africa right now. They are overwhelmed in terms of trying to sequence samples and keep up with this. The fact that supplies aren't coming in because most supplies come in on the belly of commercial aircraft and commercial aircraft aren't landing there now has complicated things to say the least for South African colleagues, physicians. So I think if there is a way that we could be supporting them so we can be getting this information more quickly, what is the true prevalence of this infection? You know, is it 50% of the cases or 100% of the cases? Get more samples sequenced. All of that could be um, improving our understanding of what kind of risk this poses. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner, back with us here on In-Depth. Thank you. Well, you say Huma, I say Hama, Huma, Hama. <laughs> There's a story to that because when we come back, we are going to ask Huma Abedin, who endured one of the most publicly painful marriages in recent history, uh, how to pronounce her name, among other things. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Huma Abedin is one of the most uh, well-known, yet silent gatekeepers in U.S. politics, longtime aide to Hillary Clinton for decades, and had what ended up being the, the explosive marriage to Congressman Anthony Weiner. Uh, she is not staying silent anymore. No, in fact, in her memoir, Both and Life in Many uh, Words, she's setting the record straight, telling her story on her own terms from her relationship to her Muslim faith and South Asian family to her time on the national stage with Secretary Clinton and Anthony Weiner. Um, Hummer, welcome to the show. And uh, we it's funny because we, we were having some fun with your first name before. And the reason is because we've heard it pronounced so many different ways. And it factors into the book as well. And it factors into the book as well. So what do you like to be called? Mike and Charles, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. I'm happy to be talking to you. And, Same. Uh, correct. There are many different ways to pronounce my name. It actually is Huma uh, with a short U, but most people have a hard time pronouncing it. So I find that even as I introduce myself, if you listen to the audio version of the book, I basically please my audience. So if I'm here in the United States, I usually introduce myself as Huma. But back home, uh, and even in my household, uh, I'm called Homa with a short U. 
Do you prefer one or the other, or has most of America been getting it wrong and that's now okay because it's been so long? <laughs> You've nailed it. Uh, you can you can say Huma. I respond to it. I don't have a preference. Uh, I'm just uh, happy to be out in the world having conversations uh, with people, including you. So thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for being here. So now explain the, the title, uh, both slash and. What do you mean by that? Okay, first of all, I, not to call you guys out, but you are in good company because I did this to um, Stephen Colbert as well. Okay. Because he also described the book title as both and a life in many words. And uh, oh, it, it's it is, world. It, it's world. It's world. It's a life in many. It's world. It's a life. And, and he got it wrong too, Steve, did he? Okay, good. It, it, it's, it's, totally, it's totally fair because it is many There words. are a lot of words. Yeah, yeah there are. Yeah, there are a lot it of words in your words. book. The book is long. But one of the reasons I said, the main reason I settled on this title, both and a life in many worlds, um, is because I feel as though we are increasingly living in uh, an either or world. And the way I was raised, you know, I'm a product of two immigrant parents, an Indian father, a Pakistani mother, left their homelands, came to this country. They were both Fulbright scholars for my family. Education was a religion in and of itself. I was born in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And when I was two, my father was diagnosed with a, a with the, you know, told he had five to 10 years to live. And one of the first lines I wrote in my book was uh, my father was told he was dying. And so he went out and he lived and we moved to Saudi Arabia two months later. It was supposed to be for a year. That was 42 years ago. And my parents, our entire lives, you know, taught us to explore other worlds, cultures, languages, faiths, religions. And so I did grow up, grow up in many different worlds. Uh, raised to appreciate uh, the values and principles in other countries. And so when I walked into the White House at 21, I feel as though having this world perspective that my parents showed me brought a different perspective to the world, uh, you know, my professional world. And, um, and it's how I choose to, con you know, still live my life in a both and uh, world, uh, talking to other people, curious about other people, and uh, and proud to share my story. Curious about the perspective shift uh, now versus through a lot of your career. We mentioned, you know, gatekeeper or however you want to term it, but always kind of to the side. And you, you write, you know, I knew exactly where to stand, where I could uh, whisper a word or pass a note, but I wasn't always in the shot or in the frame. But now you're out there telling your story on your own. What is that like? It has surprised me, uh, to be honest, in that I, I am somebody who's preferred to be in the shadows. I have been the invisible staff person. I was raised in politics at a time where the shot was supposed to be pristine and perfect with only the principles and your message of the day. And, and my, my job was to be the person who planned and organized everything and then disappeared. And as I write in the book, you know, normally when a staff person like me is in the news, it's not good. Um, but to now, 25 years later, to finally, uh, you know, put my story down on, on paper, uh, I was both surprised at how much I enjoyed the process. I, I basically vomited on, on paper, put down my story. And now that I'm out in the world talking about it, I have, I have loved, I have a sense of lightness and liberation. And um, it's been a very therapeutic and very reaffirming and gratifying uh, few weeks. I've, I've loved being out on the road. Well, let, let's talk a little bit uh, about 
maybe why it's therapeutic, because I do think that a lot of people with the book, and it's a good book, but a lot of people, and I think you know this, are going to like speed ahead, and they want to mm. find out about the relationship you had, uh, and maybe still have in some ways, because you do share a child, right, with Anthony Weiner. Um, and in, in the book, you indicate that there was perhaps a red flag even before you got married to him, right? In, the, in, a, in a, an email or something like that from a, another woman. Well, I chose to write uh, in detail about my relationship with Anthony. And in part, uh, when I was uh, starting the process of writing this book, uh, the researcher who was helping me said, you know, I've been looking at a lot of the headlines about you over the last uh, few years. And the most common ones seem to be what is wrong with her and what is she thinking? And it is one of the reasons I chose to put exactly what I was thinking. And I tried to take the reader back to that time when I first met Anthony and what it was like uh, sharing the fact that he was my first love. He was the first man I was ever with. And he was my first Valentine's date. This, this, this was a person who I met when he was in Congress, this dynamic, smart, you know, interesting. Um, and most, I think people would agree at the time with a very bright uh, career and future ahead of him. And so I fell in love with him despite, you know, this feeling of, you know, my job came first and there, I was never actually going to end up with him. And no, I didn't, you know, to, to answer your question, I didn't really know what I was getting into. I was ambivalent. Uh, and actually, ambivalent's not the right word. I was apprehensive about being in a relationship with somebody so public, knowing that I would have to give up so much of what I prize, my, my privacy. And so all of that made me nervous. And, and being with somebody who I saw out in the world being pursued by people, he, people found him interesting and captivating. So there was some uneasiness that came with that. And, and I didn't, the red flag, as you noted, I do write about this in the book, seeing all these adoring messages um, from multiple strangers um, and, and, uh, was scary. Yes, it absolutely, uh, was a, an alert. Now, the fact that he had never responded to any of these was also something that I had processed back then, but, you know, I share in the book, it was just honestly, it was the beginning uh, of a pattern of behavior that Anthony was falling into that would eventually uh, destroy our marriage, certainly, and, and ruin us in many ways. Much more to talk about. Hang with us short break, and we'll be back here on In-Depth. This is KNX In Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. And still with us is Huma Aberdeen, uh, who is the author of the book Both and A Life in Many Worlds. <laughs> She's still with us. Got it that time. <laughs> we got it right this time. Um, I I'm interested in, in knowing do you know uh, if Anthony Weiner has read your book? And while you were writing your book, did it weigh on you that this is something that someday your, your child is going to read and it includes obviously much about the child's father? I did uh, have my son in mind uh, as I wrote the book and it, he is one of the main reasons I wrote the book because uh, when he grows up uh, and he's old enough to read it, I want him to be able to look at it and say, I'm really proud of what my mommy did and understand the history and legacy, his grandparents and great grandparents and the sacrifices they made um, to allow him to live the life of great privilege uh, that he currently lives. I also know that, you know, in 2021, um, you cannot protect your children forever and that between social media and everything he can find online, I, Anthony and I have chosen to only be sources of truth for our son and recognize that 
there will be a period where there are some hard truths that he is uh, going to have to learn. I did share a, a copy of the book with Anthony. I don't know if he has read it in full, but when I told him I was uh, sitting down to write the book uh, and he knew that I would be writing about our relationship, he said I had every right to share my story uh, after um, you know going through the process that I went through. You know because. Mike and Charles, I don't believe what I lived in my marriage with Anthony was all, unfortunately, that unique. I think plenty of couples in this country uh, have dealt with heartbreak and betrayal and love and tragedy and divorce and all of the things that I've uh, had to deal with, that we've had to deal with. I just had to do it on the front page of the newspaper. And so a lot of the people who have reached out to me since the book has come out with their with very similar stories. And I, I write about people I met in the book. Um so, uh, you know, in some ways, if there's some service that I can provide or share, or if it helps one person, five people as they're going through a difficult time, I'm, I'm honored to have the ability to, to do that. But uh, I, I hope my son is proud, proud of, uh, proud of his mom and, and also is, is glad that I tried to help his father too. And does your son factor into the, the question that, you know, you referred to earlier, the, the, what is she thinking question? Cause this is nothing people haven't asked you before, but you know, after scandal number three, we're well down the road and they think, why did she stay so long? Yeah. Well, every decision I made in my personal life, I tried to make, you know, I think a lot of people now have a very 2021 uh, view uh, of my marriage, but in the moment as it was happening, I was just trying to make the next right decision I thought was the right thing for me and my son. I was not even 12 weeks pregnant when the scandal first broke. I didn't understand the behavior. I think that's one thing that I hope comes across in the book. I try to take the readers down that path into those therapy sessions as we're trying to understand as somebody who grew up exerting control over every element in her life, I didn't understand behavior that you could not control. I did not understand compulsive behavior, didn't understand addiction. I didn't understand this notion that you just couldn't knock it off. And it was only when we went to the lowest of low, which everyone you know has their breaking points, and I certainly had mine, that I had to realize that to understand the behavior, I actually had to confront it. Anthony and I had to go through a very difficult process together to understand the why the, you know, the, the reasoning, how to stop, how to, you know, how to constantly, you know, live a life in therapy uh, as I, and the book with this chapter called suffering is optional. I really was suffering. It took me to a very dark place. Um, let's, let, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the emails uh, and Hillary Clinton, uh, whom, as we mentioned in the beginning of the show, uh, you're still uh, working with, right? Um, what were you horrified? And I would think you must have been, but but I'll let you address. Were you horrified when those emails uh, showed up and involved Anthony Weiner? And some people, I think, probably exaggerating it, but some people think that may have factored into Hillary Clinton losing the election. As I share in the book, that period in my life, at that point, the moment that news broke, uh, the unprecedented announcement by the then FBI director that they were reopening the email investigation, I had so much shock, so much, um, you know, shock is the right, is really the right word. And I, I felt that I couldn't even feel anymore because feeling in that moment for myself felt selfish. And in that point, it was about getting through the next 11 days, getting to November 8, getting uh, Hillary Clinton elected, which obviously did not happen. And that is something that I will carry to my grave, that guilt, that 
that uh, response, feeling of responsibility, knowing what an incredible president I believe she would have made in 2016. Every day I get up and think of all the things that would not have happened had she been elected. And that's, that is a, a hard thing to carry. I have carried it. I've learned to live with it, um, but it's not an easy thing to live with. It's, it's a, it, that's a pretty, uh, pretty, pretty heavy thing to carry on one's shoulders. Well, tell us something about HRC because look, famous people are not normal yet. They are at the end of the day. So, <laughs> so give me her, you know, not going out to the podium, but after dinner, <laughs> I try throughout this book to show, not tell. So instead of telling people, I think this person's amazing and Nelson Mandela was amazing and Barack Obama was amazing. and This is what Princess Diana was like. Instead of telling people, I just try to show the reader. I try to take them with me onto that first flight on Air Force One, into that hotel room in Egypt during the Arab Spring, into many of these experiences with Hillary Clinton, where I share losing her clothes in the East River on my very first trip when she was first lady, walking into a room where she's getting a massage after 15 minutes because we'd screwed up the time and saying we have to go and Hillary's so exhausted. And she says, wow, that hour went by very quickly you know, telling what actually happened. I mean, we had so much fun. We have so much fun together. I mean, I share all of the food we like to eat and, and still like to eat. I just left a, a lunch with her a few hours ago. The, the joy that we get in food and laughter and having adventures and going on walks. And it is surprising how normal she is. And one of the, you know, in that, because she is one of the most famous women in, in the world, she really does have this, this, you know, this humanity and this relatability in many ways. And one of the things I hope I've showed in the book is she really is a consummate problem solver. It is why there is a whole chapter in the book called Hillary Land, because this culture that she built in her office that is, you know, carried through for decades is that we're all in it together. We're always there for each other. And that is whether we needed help working on a resume or help finding a new allergist. Hillary Land is all of these things because hmm. Hillary Clinton so, is all of them. So you, you didn't want to write in the book about how great different people were. So just tell us, who did you really not like <laughs> on the world stage? <laughs> <laughs> oh my well i maybe there's going to be a sequel you guys ah, okay and in that <laughs> all the people you all of the people i don't like all of the people i couldn't stand that's but great it, it's it's i i focused on the people i focused on the people i really enjoyed uh working with and knowing and uh that li the list of the negative is is very short and even then i think i put in there um how how they affected me because some of them were very harsh and and it was pretty hard to have to to deal with being disinvited from parties or having to you know deal with the FBI even after I willingly offered you know to be helpful that was that was hard you know hard to live through those things. Uma Abedin, thanks for talking to us. Mike and Charles, thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. The book, both and a life in many worlds. Back on KNX in depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Roe v. Wade, the 1972 Supreme Court case that enshrined abortion rights nationwide, has withstood several challenges, legal, political, over almost 50 years. But there has been a confluence of events over the last five years that now puts the Roe decision and abortion access in very serious jeopardy, culminating in today's 
oral arguments at the Supreme Court over a Mississippi law that severely restricts abortion rights. Greg Storrs, the Supreme Court's reporter and analyst for Bloomberg News. Greg, thanks for being with us. So if the conservative justices are on the same page about this Mississippi law, and we always caution, you know, it's hard to read into the oral arguments too much, but they do seem to be somewhat on the same page. Uh, What does that mean for uh, the abortion rights in Mississippi? What does it mean for the larger picture when it comes to Roe? Yeah, they certainly seem to be on the same page, at least with regard to this law. All six of the conservative justices suggested they were ready to uphold this 15-week ban in Mississippi. That by itself would be a huge change because the Supreme Court has never allowed uh, an abortion ban that early in the pregnancy. The the line has been at, at what's known as fetal viability, which is well after the 20th week of pregnancy. Uh, And then the question will be, will the court go even further and overturn Roe v. Wade? And there's at least some possibility that they'll go that far. And that would be highly unusual, right? I mean, the Supreme Court has in the past overturned some precedents, but it's not something that it does either often or lightly. No, it it, it doesn't do it that often. Uh, You know, once or twice a term, maybe you'll see the court do that. Uh, Certainly from a liberal perspective, that's been the real fear about what will happen with this court. Uh, Now that Donald Trump has appointed three members to it and pushed it to the right, that the court in all sorts of areas will overturn liberal precedents. We've seen a little bit of that so far, and this, of course, would be be the big one. And even if the court doesn't do it in this in this particular case, uh, there's certainly going to be the possibility it will happen in the next couple of years. The liberal justices all asked questions that pointed to this idea of how do we maintain our legitimacy if we do this, uh, if it looks so political. Did that resonate with the conservative justices at all? Or we still had Brett Kavanaugh at the end of the day saying, you know what, there can be different access, right, in different states, Mississippi, New York, Alabama, California. If it resonated with them, they didn't show it in, in the courtroom. That That's for sure. You're right. All three of the, the, the liberal justices talked about the court's legitimacy and the perception that the court is just changing its mind because it has different members. Um, that's the kind of argument that somebody like Chief Justice John Roberts, uh, you know, often cares an awful lot about. It's also something that that Brett Kavanaugh might well care about. And it's uh, even though in the courtroom today, he seemed like somebody who was really exploring the possibility of Roe versus Wade, it remains of overturning Roe versus Wade. It remains to be seen whether he will actually go that far. So we may not really know whether those arguments uh, struck a chord uh, with people like Kavanaugh until the court rules. Well, I know in the past, uh, there were many who felt that uh, if there was a possibility of of saving Roe v. Wade, it might lie with the chief justice as a sort of pivotal judge. Is that still the sense that some people have? Well, he's not the center of the court the way he was before Justice Ginsburg died and Justice Barrett uh, took over. Now the, the center of the court, if you're lining them up left or right, is probably Kavanaugh. Now, Roberts does have the ability, if he's in the majority, to say, I'm going to write this opinion. And one could imagine him trying to write it narrowly in a way that they uphold the Mississippi law, say that fetal viability is no longer the line, but don't go any farther than that. Uh, And then the question will be, will the other five conservatives say, no, we want to go farther. Uh, That that opinion is not good enough. We're going to essentially write our own majority opinion uh, and say that Roe is overturned. Greg Storr, Supreme Court reporter and analyst for Bloomberg News. When we continue, what is it going to take to get audiences to come back to the movies?
You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Ticket sales for movie theaters on a gradual downward trend even before the pandemic. Um, crowded media landscape meant theaters had a lot more competition. Then came COVID, shutting down most of them across the country for the better part of the year, pushing a lot of theater owners to the brink. And then even after most of the theaters reopened, the audiences, uh, in many cases... They haven't really been there. So the question is, what will make moviegoers feel safe and secure in returning to theaters? And how can theaters compete with streaming services, social media, and even video games? David Heron is director and founder of the film research company The Quorum. He is the former head of research at the talent and literary agency UTA. David, thanks for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's great to so, see you. So that is, I guess, the, the question. I've been to a, a lot of movies uh, of late. Uh, I have to admit, I haven't yet seen a theater that was really full. I mean, kind of full, <laughs> but not full. You've been laying down sideways across the seats, right? Because yeah. you have the room. Yeah. Uh, so what do the theaters need to do? Can they do anything to get people back in, especially now, by the way, that we have this new uh, COVID variant that, uh, rightly or wrongly, getting some people freaked out again? Right. Well, that's 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 a whole other issue, the Omicron issue. And that's, you know, we have to sort of do a wait and see on that one. But um, certainly what we saw with the Delta variant was that some behaviors were changed. We just completed this study about uh, why people have not returned to movie theaters. I happen to be one of them. I'm what we call in the study reluctant, meaning that back in the spring, I started going back to the theaters a little bit. And then when we had the Delta surge, I stopped going. Um, in our study, we found that 49% of people who used to go to the movies have are, are currently not going to the movies right now. And the reason is why, right? That's what we want to kind of get at. And the truth is that, that there were pre-existing issues before COVID that had been exacerbated by COVID. So, you know, some of those pre-existing issues were price sensitivity, specifically when it comes to concessions, that overall people felt as though the movie going experience really wasn't that great. And then if you throw on top of that, uh, this umbrella uh, problem of, you know, these safety concerns, and all of a sudden you've got these people who went from previous film goers to former film goers. So, you know, the question is, how do you get them back? The very first thing that um, our study shows is that a, a, a sizable number of people who are former film goers would be in favor of a vaccine mandate. That would that would drive a sizable number of people back to the theaters. But that doesn't really solve the underlying problems of the theater going experience. So lower the prices and, and put in a mandate. I'm sure that the, the places know that, you know, these are options that could be on the table for them. So what's taken so long or also if it takes too long then some of these reluctant people like you are just never going to go back well you know i think we have to we have to cut exhibition some slack right they had a, a very difficult 18 months they really got hit hard and, and what we're talking about here is you know yes lowering prices is not an easy thing for them to do at the moment but we're also talking about infrastructure problems right our study shows that um, people want upgrades to seats people want you know, the experience of having people texting on their phones is is a real problem that keeps them from going to the theaters. I think, you know, for those of us who live in, in Los Angeles, we had an existential crisis earlier this year when we learned that the Arclight movies were shutting down, right? The Arclights, for many people, that was the only place to go see movies in Los Angeles where you would get that premium experience. With that gone, you know, it's uh, there are a lot of people in Los Angeles who simply say, you know what, I'm just not going to go to the movies anymore. And, that, and, and I mentioned that because what ArcLight offered is some of those experiential things that provide value 
that will drive people to return back to the theater, right? No commercials in Usher greeting the audience, um, alcohol and food in the theater. It was nice. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hope it comes back in some form, the arc light. But, um, but some of the things that you're talking about, um, you know, the people want you know, vaccine mandates, they want maybe uh, mask mandates. A, a lot of these things are already in place, certainly here in, in California. Uh, but what's lacking to some degree, I think, is enforcement of them. I mean, I've been in, you haven't been back, you said, to theaters, but I have. And, you know, nobody actually walks around. They put up on the screen, you know, you need to wear your mask in between eating. Uh, so what happens? A, nobody enforces it. And B, people take a uh, little, you know, or a big vat of popcorn. And now, the bucket will last yeah, the, and they the make whole it, time. Right, yeah. They make it last for two and a half hours, so they never put their mask back on. So it, it's really, to some degree, enforcement, isn't it? Yes, for sure. And I think there's there's a we're, we're kind of talking about two things. One is this idea of wearing masks and the other is is proof of vaccination. You know, the, the idea of wearing a mask in a movie has always been unrealistic, right? You're sitting in a very dark room. You can't really tell if the person next to you is wearing a mask or not. And quite frankly, you don't want to be taken out of the movie policing your neighbors around you to see if they're wearing their mask. I think that's why the idea of having a vax mandate adds uh, another layer of comfort for a lot of these filmgoers or former filmgoers. You know, I think what's interesting about the vax mandate, by the way, is that for um, for a, a sizable number of people in our study, many of them thought it was an overreach and that if theaters impose a vax mandate, they would actually stop going. But it ended up being a net positive for theaters um, in our study if they put in place these vax mandates. And you're right, it really does ultimately come down to enforcement. Um, but that's 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 really kind of putting a Band-Aid on, on the issue. The issue is really these underlying problems that people have with a the theatrical experience where they just don't feel like they're getting tremendous value out of going to the movies. And over the past you know, 15 or 18 months, a lot of people have gotten used to getting premium motion picture quality content at home out of necessity. The studios had no choice. They made a lot of these movies available on VOD uh, and through their streaming services. So not only that, we're beginning to see a behavioral shift where people are becoming used to watching these movies at home. So the idea of going to the to the theater doesn't feel special anymore. Yeah. Do we need to be forced back in then? I mean, so James Bond wasn't streaming. That was the one movie that I went to go see because I couldn't get it on TV. Right, right. And I think, you know, Shang-Chi was a really important movie for the business because that was the first really big movie that was not available on, on streaming at the same time. And it did show that there is a viable marketplace for motion pictures, but it's a very, it's a very narrow audience of people who are going. Um, it's mostly men and mostly between 25 to 45 years old. And once you get outside of that demographic, you really start to see a steep drop off in, in who's going to the movies. And the question is, how, you know, now that we're entering the holiday season, we've got movies like West Side Story, A Journal for Jordan, um, a romantic comedy called Marry Me with Jennifer Lopez and Owen Wilson. We're starting to see more and more movies enter the marketplace that we call, you know, four quadrant movies where you have to get men, women, young, old, all to come to the theater. And this is going to be a real test for, for, uh, for the studios right now to see if people will show up. I mean, I think West Side Story is going to be a terrific litmus test for the industry. David Heron, director and founder of the film research company The Quorum, former head of research at the Talent and Literary Agency, UTA. David, thanks for talking to us. More in-depth tomorrow at 1 p.m.